0: Hello, I'm Kenneth Tran, and I'm James Long, and we're from the Communications Committee of the Kevin B. Harrington Student Ambassador Program. This is the first episode of All Hours, a new monthly podcast entirely produced by the program. We'll bring an inside look into new events and happenings at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics, including exclusive interviews with guests and discussion about the biggest topics in national news. This month, we bring a look into a new series of events called the National Elections Lab, then an exclusive interview with Congressman Chris Pappas, and what's going on with that employer vaccine mandate. September 28th, the New Hampshire Institute of Politics began a new speaker series aimed at highlighting the various careers and positions within a national political campaign. The first speaker of the National Election Lab series was longtime campaign manager David Carney, who served as the White House Director of Political Affairs for former President George H.W. Bush throughout his presidency. He now serves as a principal at Norway Hill Associates, a political campaign and issue management firm in New Hampshire, and is currently a consultant for current Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Mr. Carney was nice enough to spend about an hour speaking with our ambassadors about the ins and outs of campaign management, how to find a work position within a campaign, and what skills are valuable when when you're working on a campaign. We have James here to expand on what was discussed at the event further. James, what were some of the keys for campaign management that Mr. Carney highlighted to our ambassadors?
1: Well, when discussing what makes a successful campaign, Mr. Carney highlighted the three T's as the key to a successful campaign. The first T was for talent. And this would consist of the talented people working on the campaign. Mr. Carney spoke extensively about how campaigns are constantly looking for talented, young, and energetic people, such as our ambassadors, to serve on our campaigns.
0: Well, once on those campaigns, what can make young people successful?
1: Well, according to Mr. Carney, successful campaign employees should be able to manage the other two T's, time and treasure. He went on to explain how time management and scheduling are extremely important for a successful campaign. This is especially important for much of the nuts and bolts of a campaign, as there are many deadlines for filing paperwork and applications. Also, many campaign events are scheduled months in advance, so it is important to make sure that you are not double booking events or booking an event on the day that a candidate cannot make it secondly a successful campaign must be able to budget itself as mr. Carney remarked on how expensive a campaign can be in order to be successful a campaign and its staff must be able to fundraise well and then allocate those funds responsibly so did you find this event helpful i found this event pretty helpful as it highlighted many of the keys to operating a successful campaign that are often not discussed Often, when, when we think of campaigns, we only think about the candidate and speeches. But Mr. Carney's insights raise my awareness of the many small details that often make a successful campaign. Well, thanks
0: for telling us about that. We'll have more events in the National Election Lab series coming up within the next few weeks, focusing on other aspects of campaigning, such as what it's like to be a candidate yourself. About a month ago, uh, Congressman Chris Pappas came over to St. Austin College, and we got to meet him.
1: Uh, Ken, I believe that you also were able to get an interview with the congressman.
0: That's true. Uh, I tried to keep it thematic and keep it sort of related to Constitution Day. So we discussed abortion rights and voting rights. And let's take a listen to what he had to say. Uh, So, Congressman, first, I want to ask, since it's Constitution Day, um, about voting rights. Uh, As you know, HR one, the the Voting Rights Act in the Senate got filibustered. And only a few days ago, um, your Democratic colleagues in the Senate introduced a new voting rights bill. What do you think of that bill, uh, even with the filibuster?
2: Well, it's a good bill, and it um, helps us restore the Voting Rights Act and the provisions that were struck down by the Supreme Court, uh, while at the same time making sure that our democracy is really a level playing field. We have a number of states that are moving to pass more restrictive uh, voter registration and voting requirements. Um, This is sort of all stemming from the big lie that was told about the last election. And I think that's just not who we are as a country. We, we thrive and succeed when everyone can participate. And that's why uh, the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act are foundational pieces of legislation that hopefully the Senate can find a path forward on. So here he's
0: talking about multiple different uh, controversial voting rights um, laws that have been passed in state legislatures, uh, predominantly by Republican state legislatures. And Democrats and advocacy groups have called these uh, particularly restrictive. He's also discussing the John Lewis Voting Rights Act that tried to establish federal voting rights, but that was filibustered in the Senate uh, in June. I also asked him about abortion rights. Uh, speaking about the Supreme Court uh, recently in Texas, uh, as you know too, uh, SB8 passed with the one of the most restrictive abortion laws um, in our time on history. Uh, you released a statement around a little more than a couple weeks ago saying that you and your colleagues must take action in Congress. Uh, Speaker Pelosi, also a couple weeks ago, said that there will be probably most likely a vote on codifying Roe versus Wade. So when you go back to the House on Monday, um, what's going to happen about that?
2: So we have a bill that's going to come up next week. It's called the Women's Health Protection Act. And basically, it takes the standards in Roe and uh, would codify that into law. And I think that's been a, an important decision that's protected the right to choose and access to health care for nearly 50 years. And um, it works and I think in the face of these restrictive, dangerous laws in places like Texas, uh, it's time to make sure the federal statutes um, reflect what the Supreme Court uh, ruled in the early 1970s. Uh, it pe- appears that the Supreme Court is backing away from honoring that precedent. And that's why I think it's really critical that Congress acts.
0: So it came over uh, during Constitution Day, which is also during the Congressional recess. Uh, around four weeks ago, the House voted to codify Roe v. Wade, but it has a pretty grim outlook in the Senate. Uh with the filibuster in place, it's going to need 60 votes, which is almost virtually impossible. But the thing is, even if it passes uh, the Senate and it goes to President Biden's desk, there's been talks that it would get instantly shut down the Supreme Court. Here's what he had to say about that.
2: Well, I'm not sure. You know, we'll see um, how things move forward. I know there's a Mississippi law that's being challenged before the Supreme Court. Uh, potentially, they could, um, you know, rule in a way um, that, uh, you know, might be even more perilous for reproductive rights. Uh, but that's why it's important that. Really, at all levels of government, we have folks that, uh, you know, are willing to provide for basic services and access. Um, That's an important conversation to be having here in New Hampshire. I also asked him,
0: since he's a New Hampshire congressman, what he's doing on a more local level uh, for abortion rights. So in New Hampshire, more locally, um, what are you doing specifically to protect abortion rights and reproductive health?
2: Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, I get asked about today was um, the rejection of these Planned Parenthood contracts in New Hampshire, which uh, really closed the doors for individuals to get Basic services like cancer screenings, birth control, annual exams um, that keep people healthy and strong economically. And so, you know, we hope to be able to work with the federal government to provide resources to these providers to make sure that care is not interrupted. Uh, But I think more generally speaking, you know, we need our legislature and our governor um, to pass laws here in New Hampshire that will reflect the work that we're doing in Washington and the precedent that has been on the books for nearly 50 years. Uh, Roe is an important. Uh, statement, I think, about our values that we share in New Hampshire. um, And I would hope to see uh, state and federal officials move in that direction. All right, that's all I had. Thank you so much, Congressman.
0: Huge thanks to the Congressman for coming to the Hilltop and being able to talk with us.
1: Nice job, Ken, with that interview. Now, let's talk all things vaccines. In the news recently, President Biden announced new rules that seek to require vaccines or weekly testing for private companies consisting of 100 employees or more. President Biden made the address on September 9th and plans on rolling out the policy on November 23rd. There have been historical cases of vaccines being mandated in the past, such as smallpox in 1905, which was heard by the Supreme Court case Jacobson v. Massachusetts. On the subject, Justice John Marshall Harlan ruled the following... Relying upon older court precedent regarding the 14th Amendment's liberties, Harlan wrote, that an American may be compelled by force, if need be, against his will, and without regard to his personal wishes, or his pecuniary interests, or even his religious or political convictions, to join the military and risk harm in its defense. This issue has started a national debate, and Ken and I will now discuss the points.
0: I think we can both agree that the COVID-19 vaccines are safe and effective. And the United States in particular uh, has been stagnating in vaccination rates. These new rules that Biden announced very clearly have a goal, and it's to get more Americans vaccinated and reduce the spread of COVID-19.
1: I I totally see the point as to um, how they're safe and where the science proves that they're safe for use. The problem with vaccines comes within the legal discussion of them. And um, more specifically, the idea of federal overreach and the independent rights that people have. A lot of individuals are going to argue that they have the individual liberty to not get them. Uh, but the thing is, it's not a full mandate. It's never been
0: a full mandate. Uh, it's either the employees have two options, it's either to get vaccinated or test weekly. So employees still have the option of not getting vaccinated if they really don't wish to. They can also just opt to
1: test weekly. Even though they are given these two options, the fact that they still are uh, given an uh, incentive, even though it's not getting the vaccine, if they are getting a test, they are still um, having their government tell them to go and do something. A lot of um, Americans are not really comfortable with that. But, and if we, if we take a look at individual states, we can, uh, see how some states are reacting to this. For example, in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis said that he's planning to sue the Biden administration over this mandate. It proves just how divisive people can be over this when, um, their, their government tries to tell them, uh, where where they should where they should go and what they should do.
0: But the thing is, even if it's divisive, mandates do work. Uh, people were divided about whether or not to require seatbelts, but now we have seatbelts required in 49 out of the 50 states, and people now wear their seatbelts. Uh, people sucked it up because it was mandated. Same thing with vaccines. In New York City, there was recently a new mandate for public health workers to get vaccinated. Before the mandate, there was an 85 percent vaccination rate among the workers, but a week after the mandate was put in effect, the number jumped up to 92 percent. So the mandates are clearly raising vaccination rates.
1: I would definitely agree uh, agree with that point um, in regards to the seatbelts example, that's a very strong one. Uh, the only thing is that because the pandemic is so recent, uh, having been developed last year, it's really something for people to get used to. And a lot of folks are just really uncomfortable with it right now. That's why there's so much backlash against the, against the institutions and mandates.
0: So we both made some great points and put in the current context, Uh, The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, recently submitted the text of the new rules uh, to the Office of Management and Budget, bringing it even closer to being established. Uh, We'll see how that plays out in the future. That's it for the first episode of All Hours, brought to you by the Kevin B. Harrington Student Ambassadors. Uh, Specifically, thank you to Andrew Borbetto, Anthony Dicenzo, Anthony Grieco, and Katie Monaghan for helping produce. Be sure to listen next month, where we'll provide you with a behind-the-scenes look at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics. I've been your host, Kenneth Tran, alongside my guest host, James Rowani. Always remember, when it comes to politics, the only stop is NIOP.